Are you ready to get real? Hello, and welcome to Real with MoxieWorks, where we discuss real estate news, tips, and of course, technology. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Real. I'm York Bauer, CEO of MoxieWorks, and I'm joined here by Nick Simmons, a two-time Olympian and CEO these days of RunGum. And Nick, great having you here. Appreciate your being a part of the show. Awesome to be here. It's uh, my first time back in Seattle in a while. Yes. And, and I'm glad it, we could do this in person. Yes, but we kept it nice and rainy for you. Yeah, just like I like it. Yes, exactly. Well, we threw out the two-time Olympian, which I'm sure perks everyone's interest. But tell us a little bit more about your your running career and uh, some of the accomplishments there. Yeah, it's an unlikely story. You know, short, stocky, white kid growing up in Boise. <laughs> Not exactly someone that would be pegged as a, as a track and field Olympian one day, but uh, Boise is a wonderful place to grow up. Miles and miles of trails. My parents are very active and encouraged me to, to get out and be active. And my first love was soccer and then ice hockey. And I, I dreamed of playing those sports professionally one day. But when I started high school, I was about five feet tall, 90 pounds. And the varsity coaches took one look at me and said, this is, there's no way. They encouraged me to go out for cross country and the rest is history. I, I went on to run uh, at Willamette University in Salem, Oregon, won seven NCAA titles there and then got picked up by Nike to run for their pro team, um, which they were starting in Eugene, Oregon, where I currently call home and ran 12 years professionally for Nike and Brooks running based out of Eugene. Wow. Yeah. And you had some some pretty big wins along the way. So tell us tell us about that. Well, it's funny because in track and field, you don't win very often. I mean, in a track and field race, in my event specifically, there's usually eight to 12 people, you know, in any given race, you know, so to win a race is a big deal. So I actually lost the vast majority of races I ever ran. But when you do get one of those wins, especially on the big stage, it's, it's life-changing. And in 2008, I had... Uh, you know, I'd put my studies on the back burner. I decided I was going to focus on running pro for two years. Um, kind of my first experience of going all in on something, right? As a, as a college kid, you're being pulled in a hundred different directions. And at the age of 21, I said, I've got to figure out what I'm going all in on. Am I going all in on my studies to become a doctor? Or am I going all in on running to see how fast I can be? And I, I went the running route and I'm glad I did. Uh, but I went all in. I mean, I went from being a three, nine student to a two, five student. I went from being 185 pound, you know, frat boy to 145 pound lean running machine. But when I invested in myself and invested in in truly going all in on something, it, it changed my life. I ended up making the 2008 Olympic team, signing another four year deal with Nike, um, and and just really becoming the athlete that I always, in the back of my mind, thought I could be, but was maybe a little bit scared to actually, you know, really put it out there publicly, you know, and say this is what I'm going for. Yeah, makes sense. And I, I think, you know, there's some parallels to business, which we'll obviously uh, get to, but that idea of a few huge wins punctuated by a lot of losses or, you It know, only takes a couple wins, though, Yeah, right? it does. <laughs> it's right. It, exactly. And you, tell me about the, the championships here in the U.S., though, because that was more than just a couple. Yeah. So if there was one thing I was good at, it, it was peaking for the right races. And I talk about, you know, I lost a lot of races. In any given season, I might run between 15 and 20 races, but an athlete can only be at their absolute peak for maybe four to six weeks in a, in a 52-week uh, year. What I was great at is making sure that those four weeks coincided with the four weeks that really mattered, so championship season. Um, in, in particular here, domestically, it was the U.S. championships, and I was actually able to win six U.S. outdoor titles, five of those in a row. Um, so if I have, you know, one feather in my cap that I particularly like to talk about, it's that. And and it's not that they were the biggest races. They weren't Olympic gold medals. They were, you know, a U.S. championship 
which I'm proud of, but it's the consistency. It's showing up every year and saying, I know what it takes to get back there because I think I saw the quote above your office what got us here today isn't going to get us there tomorrow. That's right. You know, and, and the, the game was just constantly changing. New kids coming up challenging me for the, the title of U.S. fastest 800 meter runner. My own body challenging me as I got older. And so every single year I had to sit down with my team. And I had a great team um, from my coach to my sports psychologist, the massage therapist, the whole team. And I'd say, all right, another year. How do we do this again? How do we, you know, not only replicate the success we've had, but continue to improve? Yeah, and I think, you know, that you could have just described real estate, frankly, because <laughs> real estate, uh, many of our listeners know this all too well, and some, in some cases, very painfully. There's just been huge money that's poured into the residential real estate transaction space, and it's generated a lot of disruption. And, and even, frankly, before that, every year is different. And there's also a seasonality to this business, which is interesting because you're talking about peaking at the right time. Yeah. So we'll get into, into that as you've translated some of these things into the into the business world. But one factoid that I know about you, but that I think was surprising to me, at least when I learned it, is about the relative scarcity or rarity of this kind of speed. Many of us have run a mile. I remember remember that back in PE in, yeah. in junior high. Uh, so tell us about you know your performance in the in the mile and how that relates to to mankind. Yeah. So in in the world of running, there's three events that the general public understands: the hundred, you know, because sure. fastest man alive, um, the mile, because again, we all ran the mile in PE, and then the marathon, because it's the most participated event, typically in road racing. So those are the three big ones, and it's how a lot of pro runners convey what their accolades are in terms of the general population. The mile was not my main event, but I ran it a lot because it was close to my main event. And I, and I ran it, you know, at least once or twice a year. And I actually got down to a 356 mile, ran it in the Dempsey. I had the Dempsey record here uh, at UW for a little while. Only about 1,500 human beings that have ever walked the earth have covered a mile in less than four minutes. And I was the 256th American, no, the, I think I was the 256th person to do it. Wow. So you can you can tell it. If you look at the chart of, of year by year, people that have done it, it's just getting exponential. As technology gets better, as more humans are now, you know, on the planet, uh, the tracks are faster. So about 1,500 people to date have done it. Uh, yeah. broken, broken four in the mile, that is. Well, and it just shows you the amount of effort required. I mean, how many how many years would you say in total – training and effort yeah. had you put in to to reach that level? I started running when I was 13. So I started my competitive career when I was 13. And I broke four minutes for the first time when I was 23. So 10 years, a decade. And that's running almost every single day, you know, and progressing through high school, progressing through college, and ultimately, you know, becoming a pro. And I, I ran that sub four minute mile about six months into my pro career. Yeah, and as as I like to joke, you're the overnight success that took ten years, <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's true of, of business. I mean, Moxie's a great example. We've been at this now for almost a decade, and uh, you know we're we've reached a certain level of success, and, and I'm proud on behalf of the company for that. But it takes forever, and it takes grit. The the idea, and I don't know if those of you on the audience have heard of a, a lady by the name of Angela Duckworth, but she's studied and defined the the concept of grit, and and loosely stated, it's the persistence and passion to reach long-term goals, and yeah. and I think you're emblematic of that. So let's let's shift gears though now into the business world because you, um, unlike a lot of athletes, I think figured out that your body probably wasn't going to allow you to keep doing all that forever. So yeah. tell us tell us about what you've chosen to do and and kind of how you came to that conclusion. 
Yeah, you know, the writing was on the wall, very clear for me. I, and about the age, my late 20s, I, I recognize, you know, kind of look to my left, look to my right on the starting line. I'm like, everyone's younger than me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I'm the grandfather out here. And I, I really mean that the average age of a pro runner is about 25. And so my late 20s, I, I was definitely one of the older people out there. And, and my body wasn't quite allowing me to do what I had done before. I, and I need, needed longer between sessions. I needed more recovery and, and, and recovery techniques. And I said, I, I bet you I only have a few more years of doing this. And as much as I loved it, I, I needed to have an exit strategy. And fortunately, my, my assistant coach, Sam LaPrey, has a business development background. And, and so we were kind of talking about different businesses that we would want to create. And the timing was very fortuitous. I was actually ranked number two at the world, the very pinnacle of my career, very highest ranking I got when we launched a company called RunGum. And the idea behind it was I was getting all of these energy companies sending me their drinks, you know, so Red Bull, Monster, the whole crew was sending me their products um, in hopes that I'd use it in competition. And, and the energy blends were great. Don't get me wrong. I'm a guy who loves caffeine, love towering B vitamins. The energy blends were, were great, but having a 16-ounce liquid sloshing around in my stomach before working out that's not what I wanted, right? And so I fell back on that biochemistry degree I spent so much money on at Willamette <laughs> University and took the stimulants out of the energy drink and infused them into a piece of chewing gum. So now I have something I can carry with me through the airport, right? Because they're not going to confiscate the liquids. I have something I can carry with me on my run if I need a boost, you know, at mile 10. I have something that's just a handier, more convenient, faster absorbing version of that energy drink. And we had been tinkering around with it for my own performance enhancing effects in training and racing. And as competitors and friends and family were asking for it, Sam said, we've got to bring this to market. So in 14, excuse me, 2014, we launched the company. We called it Run Gum. We sold it to runners, um, really kind of a niche product with niche branding. Uh, but, but we recognized that this could expand beyond just the running community. And in 2017, we actually went nationwide with Target with kind of a new tagline. What do you run on? If you're not running, you're idle. You know, So whether you're running around town showing houses, whether you're running errands or running into a meeting, Run Gum can give you that little boost of energy that you need. Um, and the big accomplishment of 2019, uh, we just went nationwide with Walmart. So yeah, it, I, I'm, I, I'm reminded as, as we look back on the running career and what you were just saying about, you know, just that tip of the iceberg. I mean, there were four, three or four years there where I, every day I woke up pretty sure that Run Gum either wasn't going to be successful or was going to go bankrupt. And it was twenty the end of 2018 that we really kind of turned that corner. Yeah, so you're five years in, essentially. Five years in yeah. before we really started to see yeah. the momentum start Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a big lesson that all of us can take from this discussion, which is a few things. One is you have to innovate. Right, you didn't you didn't create something entirely new. The concept of of you know energy as yeah. a, as a you know you just changed the delivery and some of the positioning of it yeah. in very clever ways. But it's the same fundamental thing. I, I like think to, real estate. I like to like describe that. it this way: we didn't reinvent the wheel; we just made a better wheel. Yeah, you know. And I think every single person on this uh, listening to this podcast has that same potential. You know, one of the things uh, Nick that's happening in our space a lot, and in particular at the brokerage level, is these so called disruptors that are coming in. Um, I've tended to, to call them more the distractors because in many cases, they're really not doing anything fundamentally new. In fact, in the vast majority of cases, they're not doing anything fundamentally new. They're simply 
making a bit of a better wheel or telling, frankly, a better story, which all of us have the potential to do. Sometimes it's just marketing, right? Yes. I, I heard this other quote, you know, the best entrepreneurs, the people that are most successful, oftentimes are the ones that get marketing best. Because there, we all know people out there that have great ideas or have launched a business and maybe weren't successful. Really, at the end of the day, it comes down to connecting with people, telling that story, saying, hey, this is a product that's going to help you. I love to tell that about Rungum. I think that what Moxie does is it's such an easy sell, right? Because you're helping people be more successful. Rungum is helping people make the most of their busy days. It's just an easy sell. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think that's the thing in real estate. We we tend at the brokerage level, I find, we tend to sort of regurgitate the same things. Many companies have a great tradition. And frankly, Moxie's an example of that, right? Our heritage starts back in 1995 when Windermere Real Estate here in Seattle registered windermere.com when we started building technology for the world's yeah. first brokerage website. But so, so that heritage is important, but constant innovation has to be happening, I believe, to make the story new and fresh and to be able to put real meat behind it so that you're not just telling a new story, but you hopefully have something new in, in the form of innovation to deliver behind that story. So well, because if you're not innovating, somebody else is somebody going else to be innovating. So you don't live in a competitive vacuum either, I'm sure, no. with RunGum. I, certainly you didn't in your career, but talk talk about the competitive landscape at RunGum and, and how you've had to overcome some of those disruptive things. Because we all wake up as as CEOs, as fellow CEOs. Yeah. I know I wake up to news. Sometimes I'm like, yeah. dang, that just <laughs> happened. Well, you know, it's it's one of those things I get asked by investors and buyers all the time. And they say, well, is anybody competing against you? I say, is anybody competing against me? Have you seen Red Bull? Have you seen Monster? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, Starbucks is on every corner. And they go, well, I mean, like, you know, caffeinated chewing gums. I go, I'm not worried about caffeinated chewing gums. I'm worried about five-hour energy. I'm like, if if you have a caffeine molecule in your product, you are a competitor. And I think that that mentality of I'm not trying to, you know, win, win uh, the kindergarten mile, I'm trying to be an Olympian. It's a mindset. It's saying, if we're going to do this, let's do it right. Let's, let's really try to knock this one out of the park. It's a mindset that we take with us into the business every single day. My business partner, every employee, it's we aspire to really, you know, change the world here in a, in, in a very meaningful way. And we're not curing cancer. We're not uh, solving the Middle East problems. But what we are able to do is give somebody that little boost that they may need at three in the afternoon or to get out the door and tackle. We love, we love it as a pre-workout, getting people out the door at 5 a.m. to work out. Very difficult to do. But if this product can help them do that, you know, it's just, it can be a, a real life changer for somebody in, in terms of lifestyle well, and, and quality so of life. And let's talk about life changer because, you know, I, I have long believed that real estate is a pretty noble profession because there's nothing more fundamental than shelter. And there's also nothing more fundamental than the place where you're going to raise a family or build your life. Uh, well, and also it, and your, investing. your largest investment. Exactly. So I, I, I think the audience might find it interesting that you've been a real estate investor essentially for, for quite some time. So yeah. talk about how that entered on earlier into your thinking. So I bought my first house at 25 and I, nice. I'll add an asterisk there because my parents helped me with the down payment. But I, I read this book and this, there's just so many people out there that are about to empathize with what I'm going to say. <laughs> the book was called why it's not a real estate bubble <laughs> and you should invest today. And I was like, oh, and what yeah. year was it? This was 2005 that I read the yeah. book. I bought my first house in 2006. I'm like, I'm about to make so much money as this <laughs> real estate investor. That house was underwater for 10 years, 10 years. But I was smart enough to recognize that bubbles burst all the time and you've got to just 
continually be buying to, you know, basically recognize the dollar cost averaging like you would in a stock. I did that on a more macroscopic scale with real estate, and I bought at the bottom of the market in 2009. So that house, of course, has done really well. But it was really just it was it was a tough learning lesson for me. I think for a lot of millennials that not everything goes up constantly, you know, and, and it's really affected the way that I view investments today uh, as an entrepreneur, as an investor. But yes, I do believe that that America runs on real estate. It does. Yeah, totally. And I, I think that's a very astute observation, the sort of it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint yeah. in everything, including certainly housing. But I think, you know, back to business, I think that's what determines in many cases the uh, the sort of separation of the wheat from the chaff. And I think a lot of these disruptors that have entered our space here in the last three, four years in particular, well, you know, it's it's all great in the beginning. But yeah. to talk about the, the, the idea of keeping up with change and really looking at it as a longer horizon than just the next week, the next quarter. I think that there's a lot to be taken away from the way an Olympian would view a cycle. So if you play in the NBA, you know, you've got a game, what, 180 games a year or something crazy like that. And you've got a um, NBA championships every year. So like your outlook, it's, it's longish. It's a year. Not for an Olympian. An Olympian's outlook is four years. That's what a cycle is. The average track and field professional uh, career is about two to three years. So wow. you, you, if you come out in 2021, you likely statistically won't even see an Olympic Games, right? So that's the kind of outlook you're having. You're saying to yourself, when I came out in, in 2008, I was lucky that I was only two years away from a game. But when I, when I made the 2008 team and, and decided to commit another four years of my life to the 2012 games, all of a sudden I'm taking a four-year outlook. You know how much can happen in four years? Oh, God, yeah. And you're, 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 you're planning races four years out. You're planning childbirth. If you're a female athlete, most females scheduled their childbirthing years into what we call down years where there's not a world or Olympic Games. I mean, <laughs> that's the kind of wow. focus and planning and foresight that takes to be successful in the world of track and field. In real estate, you know, very similar. I mean, we're talking about macroscopic cycles that run in, you know, 10, 20-year cycles. You've got to be planning for those. Oh, yeah, for sure. And so how do you – taking that that longer horizon makes sense, but how do you stick to it? In other words – and this is something I've struggled with at times too, frankly, is the difference between having a good long-term strategy but also – being nimble enough to react during, like in your four-year horizon, for instance, stuff's going to come up that, right. you know, it, the Mike Tyson, you know, everybody has a <laughs> everybody has, I'm going to say that exact quote. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, so let me talk to you about the 800 because I don't know if a lot of people know about the 800, uh, so let me kind of set it up. It's the fastest event on the track where you break from lanes, right? So the 400 uh, is a, is a you know, long sprint, but you stay in your own lane. And when you stay in your own lane, it, it controls a lot of variables. No one can touch you. No one's going to push you. No one's going to get tripped in front of you. You have your own lane. Um, if you were to go one level up to the mile, it's a very tactical affair. Um, you know, it's not quite as chaotic because there's time. You have sure. time on your hand. The 800 is pure chaos. And so it's, it's a nice way to present this analogy of you go in with the best plan possible. So before a race, before the Olympic finals in 2012, I spent days visualizing how this was going to play out. David, the, the world record holder, is going to go out at you know this pace, and this person's going to react to that this way, and I'm here. But if something goes wrong here, then I'm there. If the track's wet, then I'm going to have to do this. I played out a thousand different scenarios in my head so that when the gun went off, I felt as prepared as I possibly could be. But guess what happened? 
It all went, it all went, out, it all right. went out the window. But did that give you the confidence, do you think? Is that what that preparation gives yes. you? Yeah, you, you, you go there being as prepared as possible. But if I, if I imagined a thousand scenarios, the thousand and first scenario was something crazy happens that I didn't expect. And I still am prepared for that by just being ready to take the punch. You know, I always said, if I had one special tool in my toolbox, because I wasn't the fastest, I wasn't the strongest, if I had one special tool in my toolbox, I rolled with punches better than anybody. And maybe that's just the gritty Idaho farm boy in me. Maybe it's the fact that I went to a D3 school instead of a D1 school. But there's there's just not much that could come my way that would phase me. In fact, I preferred the worst weather. I preferred flight delays. I preferred TV delays. The, the crazier things that could happen would almost always benefit me because everybody would be running around panicking, screaming, wasting energy while I just put my headphones in and, you know, sit there and relax. Yeah. So I think you you want to go in with a plan. You want to always expect the punch so that you can be the one that rolls with it and, and responds in a way that ultimately benefits you. Right. Let other people worry. Let other people right. so let's panic. T- so let's talk about that because I think one of the things that, that I've also tried to – minimize is reacting against competitors. Meaning, yes, you live in a competitive space and, and back to run gum, as you said, you're, you're competing with some of the largest uh, consumer good companies yeah. out there. But it's not so much about that. It's it's about be, not beating yourself. Right? Yeah, not, completely. Not defeating yourself. So yeah. talk, talk about that aspect and how you pay attention to competition, but don't get obsessed with it. Well, I had the incredible privilege and the incredible unfortunate fortunate uh, timing to be born around the same time as a guy named David Rudisha. He's the current world record holder at 800 meters. I've never actually beat him. He destroyed me in the Olympic final. And I say privilege because it's just such an honor to be with an athlete like that, a once in a lifetime, you know, once in a generation talent like David Rudisha. Uh, but unfortunate timing because if I was on the line with him, he was probably going to beat me. Um, and a lot of times that would really just bother me. And I, I was lucky enough to work with a sports psychologist by the name of Jeff Trosh. And a lot of times he would just say things like, don't you think you might be just beating yourself by worrying about what David's doing? And a lot of times I was. And he said, when we step on the line, there are so many things we can control. My training, what I eat, when I sleep, you know, a hundred different variables that I can control. The ones I can't control is what David does. And he's like, the more time you're spending energy worrying about David and his variables, the less time you can control your own. That's right. And I think Unfortunately, our industry, with all this disruption of money that's come in, is guilty of that. You know, we're spending a lot of time talking about and, frankly, amplifying our our competitors versus just sticking to our knitting and getting better at what we uh, what we do. So let's let's talk about that aspect of of things because I feel like you're combining some things you've said. Your Walmart deal, congrats again on Thanks that. Thanks very much. Huge. Yeah. Um, You'll find it in the sporting goods section. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Rush your nearest Walmart today. But it, it seemed like it would combine a number of things that we've talked about here. The, yeah. the, need, the need to have a long-term plan, the, the realization that su- success takes time, the idea that you have a plan, but things are going to go awry no matter what your plan is. Mm-hmm. So can you, and, and I'm not asking you to disclose stuff you can't hear, obviously, Nick, but just talk about how this, for your company, it was yeah. it was a, a life-altering opportunity. How did you approach it? What went wrong? How did you react? Because that, in many ways, this you know, I think a lot of our audience is running the same race in their business. Yeah, I mean, if, if you went back to kind of the, the beginning when we created it and said, write a business plan, it didn't involve going into Walmart. We were a little running gum company. You know, we were niche. But when Target came, that kind of 
was one of those, I will call it a punch because we had to respond. I, we weren't expecting it. It came out of left field. We pivoted. We built a wholesale business. And then we start scaling that, um, which of course brought the Walmart business to us. It's it's one of those things like, here's a good example. You know what a performa is. Sure. For those uh, not not building out performas for investors, uh, it's basically like a three-year outlook on what I in- expect the business to be like for the next three years. And a lot of it is complete BS. It's like, oh, I think we might land Sam's Club and that's a $6 million Yeah, the only thing order. you know about a plan yeah. is it's going to be wrong. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I, I almost resent the exercise because here we are five years into business. We've built five performas. And if you were to go back, guess how many of them ended up being spot on? <laughs> yeah, Not zero. a single dang one. Yeah. So if I'm looking now and I'm building out a three-year performa for the next three years, I, I'm like, what? why am I even doing this? Because I know with 100% certainty that this is not how it's going to unfold. But what it does is it forces us to go through a plan. Yes. It forces us to, to role play or, or to use the sports analogy. It forces me to sit down and do a thousand different mental exercises of how could this race unfold. So I have my I have my plan A, which I pitch to investors as this is a you know guaranteed thing. You got to invest. <laughs> but I, I've gone through so many different permutations that if something that didn't land on that performa comes our way, I'm ready for it. Got it. And so did you have anything happen along the way on, on the Walmart deal that you would point out? Like that, yeah. that it, it, oh, it was yeah. more from what was going through your head, whatever happened, what, what was going through your head and how did you sort of contain that? Yeah. Because all of us, everyone listening to this, I believe, has those experiences almost daily, frankly, yeah. as leaders in business, this constantly, these things that go wrong. I mean, a good example is Walmart placed their first order back in April. And we talk about lead times in, in consumer packaged goods because you actually have to get the money and make the goods and then ship the goods. So there's a, there's a little time in between there. So fortunately, they placed an order in April due to ship in October. Wonderful. Plenty of time. No problem at all. So we start building the gum. We decide, oh, let's, let's double the order size just because if it goes really well, we'll want to have the gum on hand, you know, come 2020 to be able to replenish. So we double the order. And this is something we'd learned, you know, through experience. As we're fulfilling the order, Walmart decides they want to double it. If oh. this had happened, if we hadn't had the foresight to make that plan, if we hadn't doubled the order, we would have lost the contract because we wouldn't have been able to fulfill. But because we had been through this, we'd taken our lumps through Target, we'd taken our lumps through CVS, we'd become a more mature business who had built better performance and made better plans. We said, no problem, Walmart, happy to. Yeah. And now, of course, we're scrambling just because we're so understaffed trying to get this order out the door. But if I bring it back to running one more time, the majority of medals, and not just running, any sports, the majority of medals are won by veterans for the very simple reason that they know what to expect when they get to an Olympic Games. And the majority of houses aren't sold by upstart newbies. They're sold by the people who've been doing this for decades because they know how the game's played. Yeah. So I think that when you talk anything, real estate, business, professional athletics, Take that long outlook, but be nimble along the way, knowing that every time you get punched, it's just going to make you stronger and more resilient for the next punch. And, and that's how you win fights, right? Absolutely. And I think that that is perhaps the, the perfect way to, uh, to end this, because I think those, those words are about <laughs> as true as they get. So really appreciate your your time and expertise here, Nick. You've uh, you've been an inspiration to a lot of people also online. You can, uh, in fact, uh, what what should people do uh, as far as social media, et cetera, to to get to know you better? Yeah, I'm on all channels at Nick Simmons. That's Simmons with a Y and Rungum's on all channels at Rungum. 
Wonderful. Well, thanks again for taking the time. And thanks also to you in the audience. Appreciate your time for tuning in today. And uh, we'll see you again next month. Thanks for getting real with us. See you next time.